Romans 1, 19 through 23 is our text today. We are making our way through the New Testament book of Romans. This is the ninth sermon in this series. Today's sermon is 35 handwritten pages, and the title of today's sermon is The Feudal System, or as you say in New York, The Futile System. Please turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. As you do, keep in mind that God loves you. I'm going to be reading verses 18 through 23, even though our text is 19 through 23. Hear the word of the Lord. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Our Father in heaven, our prayer this morning is twofold. Number one, I would ask you please by your Holy Spirit to enable us in all of our lives and everything that we do and say and think to glorify and to honor you. Secondly, Lord, I would ask that you, by your Spirit, would grant us to have genuine thankfulness in our hearts. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Our outline today is a simple one. It is only two points. Point number one is verses 19 and 20, and that is the obvious. And then point number two is the outlandish. That is verses 21 through 23. When I was a little boy, my favorite baseball player was Al Oliver of the Pittsburgh Pirates. If you go in my office, you will see on my wall a photograph of Al Oliver and also an autograph of Al Oliver. It was my desire more than anything to have a 1971 Al Oliver Topps baseball card. And so in an act of desperation, I went to my friend knowing that he had one and said, let's make a trade. I will give you 100 of my cards. You can pick them. Take any 100 cards you want in exchange for that one Al Oliver card. However, there's one caveat, and that is I want you also just to give me one additional card, maybe the worst card that you have. The New Testament book of Romans is 16 chapters in length. The first eight chapters spell out the gospel. Uh, We have studied so far chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, and even in these 18 verses, we've learned a lot about the gospel. So far, we have learned that it is the gospel of God. We've learned that it was present in the Old Testament. Uh, We have learned that this gospel is concerning God's Son. We have learned that the author, the Apostle Paul, was eager to preach this gospel in Rome, We also learned that he was not ashamed of it because it was the power of God to save. And we learned that the gospel unveils the imputed righteousness of God to everyone that believes. Now, as we move into chapter 1, verse 18 and following, he starts to give us the content of the gospel. 
And we started last week by looking at the content of the gospel, noting that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Uh, We noted that this wrath or revelation or unveiling of the wrath of God uh, is a present activity, that God is angry with the wicked every day. We also noted that it will be present in the judgment for those that do not believe and throughout eternity. And it is directed, this wrath of God, upon all who are ungodly, that is, those who do not give proper reverence to God, and upon all of those who are unrighteous. In other words, those who sin against their fellow man. But we noted also that not only do we sin, but after we sin, it is not our natural tendency to come to the light and to confess, but after we sin, we actively suppress the truth. We tell ourselves why it was acceptable for us to sin. We defend ourselves. We distract ourselves. In fact, we do whatever it takes to actively suppress or to hold down the truth of God. That is the context that leads up to the five verses that we're going to be looking at today, verses 19 through 23. And what we have in these verses is essentially a manual on how to suppress the truth of God. Uh, Paul begins his argument by pointing out that something is very, very obvious. Uh, In nature, we see obviously that God exists. So, point number one, the obvious, verses 19 and 20. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Uh, In these two verses, there are two words which jump off the page. In verse 19, it is the word plain, and in verse 20, it is the word clearly. Plain and clearly. The existence of God is not opaque. It is not hidden. It is not veiled. God is not playing hide-and-go-seek with us. God is not a Find Waldo book. God is there, front and center, in your face, undeniable, plain, and clear, and that is seen in creation or nature. Now, by this, Paul does not mean that we can look at nature and write a systematic theology textbook simply by studying glaciers or giraffes or pomegranates or planets. Uh, By nature, uh, I don't mean that we can come to the conclusion that God loves us and is going to save us, but nature is indeed preaching a sermon. And the entire message points to the existence of God as our creator and sustainer. Uh, Again, I I need to stress this for the sake of missions and the gospel. The text does not teach us anything, and nature cannot teach us anything about the grace of God or his holiness or his mercy or his love. The, 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 The giraffe or the glacier or the pomegranate or the planet cannot teach us about God's wrath or justice or righteousness. Nature cannot teach you about redemption or sanctification or eschatology. But the contemplation of nature can do something. And that is, it will give you enough information, adequate information, in order for you to know that God exists. Can't save your soul, but you can conclude by looking at nature that God exists. The created universe 
is what the theologians call general revelation. And everybody, even people who don't own a Bible, have general revelation. What we need in order to be saved is special revelation, and that is also known as the Word of God. Verse 20 tells us that there are two obvious invisible attributes which we can detect, his eternal power and his divine nature. And notice the irony here. It is ironic that what we are looking at are his invisible attributes. Uh, This is an intentional play on words. This is an intentional oxymoron. His invisible qualities are what we are looking at. And so you will never see God himself, John 1.18. No one has ever seen God. 1 Timothy 1.17 speaks of the king of the ages who is immortal and invisible, and thus we sing the hymn, Immortal, Invisible, God Only Wise. But even though he is invisible, his work is very, very obvious. I realize that this is a bad analogy and that it falls apart on many different levels. It has been used and way overused. But I think in some ways it gets the point across, and that is that you cannot see the wind, but you can certainly conclude that the wind has passed by. In the same way, you're not going to see God, but his fingerprints are everywhere. And you don't need a microscope or a telescope. You do not need a degree in science in order to appreciate the complexities of nature. Uh, furthermore, one not uh, need not even be intelligent Uh, nor must the study of the existence of God in looking at nature uh, be a long process where we have to contemplate over a long period of time and conclude that he is there. No, he is powerful and he is divine and he is altogether different and that is brutally obvious. You know, as I watched my four children being born, I was overcome with the power and the greatness of God. Like, like how, how does that happen? I mean, I, I know where babies come from, and I know how it happens, but how does it happen? How are they formed in the womb? Who does that? I know I didn't do it. I was overcome with the greatness and the power of God. His existence is obvious. And I feel that if I spend too much time belaboring this point, I am going to, A, dishonor God, and I'm going to insult your intelligence. Uh, Let me give you an illustration. As you look over there, underneath that air conditioner, you will see a wall. What I'm going to try to do is I'm going to try to convince you that that wall has been painted by a painter. Now, it's going to take a while. We're going to talk about this for a while this morning, but but don't worry, because we're having a service tonight. We want you to come back tonight at 6 o'clock, and I'm going to give testimonials of people who have seen walls painted in the past, and we're going to try to prove to you that paint gets on walls by painters. But, but, if, but if you look at it and just study it and think about it, I know you came in today and you're distracted and, and your mind's going a million different directions, but if you can, just... Try to look at that wall. That is paint on that wall. 
We could take a chip off of it. We could take it to a lab, and I could prove to you that it is paint. Now, here's what I want you to conclude. This is where I need you to put on your thinking caps. Here's where I need you to study and to contemplate. Since there is paint on that wall, brothers and sisters, I need to work hard now to convince you that there has been a painter. In fact, all studies have shown in the past that paint gets on walls from a painter. So let's take some time to think about this, to meditate on this. If you want to talk to me after the service, I'd be happy to talk to you. I will do whatever I can to convince you that paint is on this wall from a painter. And by now, if you have any sanity at all, you're saying to yourself, stop, please stop. We get it. We're not arguing with you. And likewise, in fact, I would even say more so, God has made his existence and his power known and his divinity known in creation. We do not need to belabor the point. It's plain. It's clearly perceived. But if it's so plain and if it is clearly perceived, it begs the question, why even put these verses in the Bible at all? I mean, if it's so obvious, why even put it there? I used to have a friend who would listen to me talk and I'd make observations and he would say to me, you know, Ed, you have a keen sense for the obvious. Like, if it's so obvious, why does it even need to be brought up? And the answer is, from verse 18... It is because of the power of our sinful hearts to actively and perpetually suppress the truth. We, by nature, are truth suppressors. And part of the suppression of truth is that people will deny the eternal power and divine nature of God as creator, sustainer, and governor of the universe. And that suppression of truth... Uh, leaves us in a condition where we are blind. If you have a person that's blind, it doesn't matter if you turn on the lights. They're not going to be able to read any better. And sometimes the blindness of our active suppression of the truth morphs into us denying the existence of God. So people will become agnostic or they will become atheists. Now, you know, there's a debate in theology as to whether or not one can actually be an atheist. A book has been written, Does God Believe in Atheists? I mean, do atheists really exist? And they will look at these two verses and they will say, based upon these two verses, there is no such thing as an actual atheist because God has revealed himself to the person and there's so much evidence in front of them. They know that there is a God and when they tell you that they do not believe in God, they are actually lying to you. They might be lying to themselves too, but they really, deep down in their heart of hearts, believe that God exists. I don't know if I agree with that. I don't think that that is what these verses are teaching. I think that the power of the sinful human mind to suppress the truth is such a mighty force that there indeed are sincere atheists who genuinely believe that God does not exist, especially the God of the Bible. Now, obviously, I think that they're wrong, But I also think that they are probably telling the truth when they say that they do not believe in the existence of God. 
The reason that I point this out is because I want you to understand the power of the wicked human heart to suppress truth. It, it, it makes the heart very hard, and it makes the eyes very blind. In fact, as it says in Ephesians 2, we left to ourselves are dead. And at times, it is so blinding that even the giraffe or the glacier or the pomegranate or the planet, even though they are screaming, there is a God, we're not going to be able to see it. It's obvious, but we will not see it. There is the blinding power of the suppression of truth, which renders people as fools. Even as it says in Psalm 14.1, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And then in Psalm 53.1, it is repeated, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Only a fool would believe that nobody painted that wall. My point exactly. Paul's point exactly. The suppression of truth renders us Fools. William Plummer put it this way. Before men can yield themselves to atheism, polytheism, idolatry, or ungodliness, they must first resist clear and strong convictions, even if they live in heathen lands. In other words, what Plummer is saying is you don't by nature become an atheist. You have to work at it. You have to suppress the truth. The truth is evident, and you have to push it down. Even if someone does not have a Bible, by nature, they're going to look at nature and they're going to conclude God revealing it to them and deducing from what they see, somebody had to do this. But the atheist will work and he'll put in the labor in order to suppress the truth and to deny what is obvious. And so with that, I would say it takes more faith to actually be an atheist than it does to believe that the God of the Bible exists and that he created the universe. And so Paul is saying in Romans chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, that it doesn't take great faith in order to believe in the Lord of all creation. It's obvious. Let me just pause in the middle of my sermon now and give you four quick points of application. Number one, you really should resist the usage of the term Mother Nature. In fact, I would go so far as to say you should probably graciously correct any reference that is made about Mother Nature or luck or the cosmic tumblers being aligned or karma as if nature governed itself or as if all was anarchy and nothing is by design. The fact of the matter is, God is our creator and sustainer, and he is to be credited. Therefore, we need to stop with this Mother Nature nonsense. Number two, closely related. I would caution you to be very careful about accepting the notion of intelligent design. So what is intelligent design? Well, intelligent design rejects Darwinism as the first cause. And it, it correctly concludes that nature is just far too complex to have just happened, and, and there has to have been some force at work to design our universe, and obviously whoever did that was intelligent. I was speaking with a doctor. He says that he works with many people. They are not Christians, but yet at the same time, they know that this isn't all just random. 
They know that there is some sort of a designer. Now, I would say 100%, it is true that God is intelligent, and without question, everything in the physical universe is by his precise design. But where intelligent design falls short and where it becomes dangerous is to stop before we name the designer. We need to follow up and ask the question, who is it? Can we identify the designer? We must identify the designer and creator. If you go to AA, and great, maybe you need to go, and perhaps that'll help you. I've heard people say that, that, that AA saved their life, but Jesus saved their soul. So I'm, I'm not knocking AA in any way. I'm just saying when you go there and they tell you that you have to believe in a higher power, that doesn't help you at all. You have to identify that higher power as the Lord God Almighty. In the same way, intelligent design in and of itself is a good start, but we must design, we must designate who it is. So ultimately, you've gained nothing by your rejection of Darwinism in favor of intelligent design. Intelligent design can be helpful only if you take it to the next step. Application point number three, we need to vigorously sing hymns which speak of God's power in creation. Holy, 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 all thy works shall praise thy name in earth and sky and sea. How about how great thou art? You know, a few weeks ago, I wasn't here at this church, it was another church, someone asked, do you guys sing the second verse of how great thou art? I mean, no question on the first verse, you know, O Lord, my God, when I an awesome wonder and consider all the worlds thy hands have made. And never would we ever leave out the third verse, which says, and when I think that God, his son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in. That on the cross, my burden, gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. And, and, and we're not going to leave off the fourth verse, when Christ shall come. But... It's fashionable these days to leave out the second verse. And I want to say, based upon Romans chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, we need to sing that second verse vigorously. When through the woods and forest glades I wander and hear the birds sing sweetly in the trees, when I look down from lofty mountain grandeur and hear the brook and feel the gentle breeze, then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, how great thou art, how great thou art. God has given us the forest, and he's given us lofty mountain grandeur so that we will give glory to him. This past Sunday, Ron and Stephanie were married, and at their wedding, we sang Indescribable. It's a song that we probably haven't sung here, I don't know, maybe not in the last decade. And I forgot what a great song it is, at least parts of it. That second verse, it, it, just, it just grips me with awe. Who has told every lightning bolt where it should go? Isn't that wild? That somebody's directing the lightning bolts or seen heavenly storehouses laden with snow. Who imagined the sun? Just stop right there. 
Who thinks of this stuff? Like, how do you conceptualize like a ball of fire that is close enough to us so that we stay warm, but it's far enough away so that we, we don't freeze? It's just like right at the right spot. And like, I think we're moving around. I don't know. I think we're spinning. I think we're moving. I don't know how all this stuff is moving. But it's, but, but how crazy is it that it's April the 9th and the weather feels like April the 9th and on July 9th, the weather's going to feel like July the 9th. Like, who thinks of this? Like, where does this, who, who comes up with this stuff? Well, let's just say we had this really creative science fiction writer that could invent a universe with a sun and a solar system. Wow, what a brilliant author. But now, how are you going to make this thing? Who has imagined, who imagined the sun and gave source to its light, yet conceals it to bring us the coolness of night? None can fathom indescribable, uncontainable. You place the stars in the sky and you know them by name. We need to think about and sing about what God has done in his glorious nature. Number four, and closely related. When you see something in nature that catches your eye, you need not only to contemplate it, but you need to say something especially parents. Uh, Your children are going to be taught that they have evolved from monkeys. They're going to be taught that they are animals, that they're not image bearers of God. What you need to be doing, parents, when you are going through life, and you see a sunset or a mountain or a giraffe, you need to be pointing to that thing and saying to your children, look at that. I mean, just look at it. Do you know that God made that? And, and whatever it may be, the, 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 the beauty of another human being, and more. I mean, that didn't just happen. <laughs> Creator God in all of his magnificence. That's not even in my notes. That's just like from my heart. Sometimes I have trouble concentrating when I preach because I look and they're just her beauty. It's just, I can't. We need to vocalize the, the greatness of God in creation rather than to suppress it. And this suppression, by those who do not have faith in Christ, it puts people in a very tough spot for the final judgment. Now, as I said before, nature does not give people enough information to save them, but it does provide enough evidence to condemn them. And in the final day, nobody's going to be able to stand before God and say, I didn't know or I was ignorant. Look at the last phrase of verse 20. So they are without excuse. Parents, you know this. If your children have, have, have any savvy at all, if, if, they're, like, like if, if they have any modicum of intelligence, you know that when you try to spank them, one of the best things that they can do is simply to say, I didn't hear you. Ah, what, am, like, what am I going to do? They, you know, they didn't hear me. I can't hold them you know, culpable for something they didn't hear. Then I read in Ted Tripp's book, Shepherding a Child's Heart, that what you are to say to your children 
when they say, I didn't hear you, is to say, all right, very well, you didn't hear me. I'm not going to spank you for disobeying. I'm going to spank you because you didn't hear me. <laughs> so in the future, please listen very closely to something that even sounds like my voice because you are responsible. Every person is an image bearer of God and knows the difference between right and wrong. Every person has access to nature. They might not have a Bible, but they do have a conscience. And so when they get to the final judgment, they're not going to have any defense at all. R.C. Sproul, in his commentary in the book of Romans, writes, Paul explains the rationale for the revelation of God's wrath. There, without excuse. Man has no basis for an apologia to God's indictment. What answer will corrupt and fallen human beings try to give God on the day of judgment? God, I didn't know. You were there? If you had made your revelation clear to me, well, then I would have been your obedient servant. People will be tempted to make a plea or excuse, but everyone stands without an excuse. There is no excuse of ignorance before God, not when he himself has given us the information. A plea of ignorance is an empty plea, and it will have no effect. And people say, why aren't there any miracles today? Well, it's, it's, a, it's another sermon for another day. The reason there are no miracles today because miracles are there for the purpose of authenticating the messengers, and since the messengers have completed the message, there are no more miracles to authenticate the messengers. But, but, but let's just say there was an ongoing message. Why would we not have more miracles? One author has put it very well, and he said, when we deny the miracles that we see every day, and he didn't use these four examples, but you know what I mean, of glaciers and pomegranates and giraffes and planets, why should he be providing more information when we don't believe the magnificence that is before our eyes every day? We are without excuse. Now, you need to know that in the final day, people are not going to be condemned because they rejected Jesus as Savior and Lord. They're going to be condemned because of sin. The wages of sin is death. The soul that sins shall surely die. The revelation that we all receive from nature is not enough to save us. So again, let me belabor the point. You can study giraffes and glaciers and planets and pomegranates your entire life, and you're not going to have enough information to be saved. What you need in order to be saved is special revelation, which is the Word of God, Romans 10, 17. So faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. The exclusivity of the gospel preached. Jesus said, I am the way. No one comes to the Father except through me. Acts 4.12, there's no other name given under heaven among men whereby we must be saved. 1 Timothy 2.5, one, one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. We must preach the gospel in order for people to be saved. That is why we send missionaries. Have you ever considered that maybe God wants you to be a missionary? I think that that's something that every Christian should contemplate. Every Christian should contemplate. I remember when I was a little boy, I asked my father a, a very perplexing question. At least to me, it was perplexing. I said, Dad, what happens if a missionary goes to another land and, and he gets sick? 
and there, there's, there's someone there, and, and they, they pick up the missionary, put the missionary over their shoulder, and they carry the missionary several miles in order to get medical attention. And as soon as they deliver the missionary to the doctor, the person who, who, who has saved the missionary's life, if they drop dead right there, a heart attack, are they going to go to heaven or are they going to go to hell? The father said, they're going to go to hell. Why? Because they have sins which are not forgiven. Because they have, they did a very noble deed, but because their sins are not forgiven, they are going to be damned and condemned. They're not saved by doing good work, carrying missionaries on our backs. We are saved through Jesus Christ, which begs the age-old question, what happens to the innocent heathen who has never heard of Jesus, what will happen to them at the judgment? And the answer is the innocent heathen will go directly to heaven. There's only one problem with that, and that is that there is no innocent heathen, for all have sinned. And therefore, we must preach the gospel. We We must send missionaries. Think about whether or not the Lord is calling you to be a missionary. I think every Christian should wrestle with this. But that is not the point of Romans 1.20. The point of Romans 1.20 is that because of the obviousness of God's revelation in nature, nobody will have an excuse in the final day, not you, not me. And the wrath of God, from back in verse 18, is revealed from heaven and it will be experienced throughout eternity. That's point number one, the obvious. Now we come to point number two, the outlandish. The outlandish, verses 21 through 23. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling, resembling, hang on to that word, resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. When it says they knew God, it doesn't mean that they knew God as Lord and Savior. Uh, They didn't. When it says they knew God, it doesn't mean that they knew about him in his word. They didn't. This is referring probably to Gentiles. When it says they knew him, it doesn't mean that they knew his law at all. In fact, in the context here, it means that they knew him in the sense that he revealed himself by nature and in creation. And their response to this was not to honor him and to praise him and to glorify him as they should, and their response was not to be thankful. And those two sins are the sins that I want to talk to you about as we close today. Those two sins are the root sins that lead not only to idolatry, but every other kind of sin as well. You see, for those who do not glorify God, but rather they, they, they live to please themselves and they want to bring honor and glory to themselves and they are the gods and the lords and the kings and the queens of their own lives, their pride keeps them from giving God the glory that he deserves. And likewise, pride will prevent someone from having a thankful heart. If you think about it, you who have raised children, You do not have children who are by nature thankful. You can teach them how to be thankful, but you have to instruct them to do that. By nature, we are entitled. 
Let me ask you a question. Would you consider yourself to be one who passionately strives to bring glory to God? Would you classify yourself as a thankful person? Well, if so, praise God. I would guess then, if that's the case, then probably you are growing in your faith and you are progressing in your sanctification. But please know that the opposite of this is just as true. For if we do not seek to glorify God, but rather our own glory, and we are not thankful, but rather we are those that complain and feel as though we are entitled We, in looking out for ourselves and not for the promotion of God's glory, even as Paul said in Philippians chapter 2, nobody seeks for the glory of Jesus Christ. Everybody looks after their own interest. Then we perhaps are not very different than the pagans that are described in Romans chapter 1. Let me ask you this question. Are you a professing Christian? Are you one who would say that you are saved? Well, then by definition, you should have lips and lives which are filled with a maniacal, relentless passion to bring glory to God, and you should be expressing thankfulness to Him all the time from your heart and with your lips. One time, Charles Spurgeon was walking through the halls of his church, and he saw two women in a conversation. One woman was complaining. Spurgeon walked up to the two women very quickly, just in passing, and he said, what, not in hell, and yet complaining? (laughs) The Gentiles that are being referred to here uh, did know of God. Everybody knows of God from creation. But they didn't glorify him, they didn't honor him, and they were not thankful. And then there's that word, but. But, by contrast... And here's where I get the title, the futile system. They became futile, useless in their thinking, in their reasoning, in in their perception of the facts. And notice that it was not just a stupidity, but it it, it, it digresses into a, a decline in morality. Their foolish hearts were darkened. This is exactly what happens at the base of Mount Sinai. I mean, God is up at the top with Moses. He's giving him the law. The people are down at the bottom. They stop being thankful. God's given them manna every morning. They stop being thankful. They are tired of waiting for Moses, this fellow Moses. We don't know what has become of him. We are in the mood to worship. And so, Aaron, will you make for us a golden calf? And he makes the golden calf. And what happens? It begins with their worship of the golden calf. And before you know it, their clothes are coming off. They're getting naked And there's an orgy going on to the point where when Moses walks down the hill, he hears the sound of the party. First they became idolaters, then they became immoral. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Douglas Moo in his commentary on Romans says this, It is in the reasonings of people that this futility has taken place, showing that whatever their initial knowledge of God might be, their natural capacity to reason accurately about God is quickly and permanently harmed, end quote. And this is exactly what happens. The more that we compromise and do not glorify God and are not thankful, the more our morality declines. And when it does, our ability to reason and to see things as they really are goes into oblivion. 
Earlier, we spoke about the fact that people have an inability to be saved by looking at nature. Well, I'll do you one better. Not only are people incapable of looking at nature in order to be saved, but people are incapable of becoming converted even when they hear the actual, accurate, full gospel of Jesus Christ spoken in their own language in simple terms. Do you get what I'm saying? You walk outside, you see the giraffe or the glacier or whatever. You're not going to be able to be saved by seeing that. Friends, I can't tell you the number of times that I've spoken to people who are a lot smarter than me, and I used really simple, small words to say to them, like I'm going to say to you, like, like, like just like right now, some of you are unsaved, and you are smarter than me, and I'm going to use really small, simple words and concepts right now to tell you that there is a God, and that he is holy, and that he does require perfection, but you have done some bad things, and those bad things are called sins. You have sinned against God. You have broken his law, but happy Easter, he loves you, and he, he, he took care of your sin by sending Jesus, his son, to come from heaven to earth to die for you so that you could be saved. And that if you will believe in him, uh, this Jesus who was dead, who was in the grave, and then he came out of the grave, happy Easter, he's alive, and then he goes to heaven, and now he's alive. And right now, this Jesus is alive. And if you will believe in him, you will be saved. Now, that's pretty simple. I suppose if I tried, I could have come up with words that are a, a little more simple than that, or I could have designed the, 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 the flow of that argument perhaps in a more logical manner. But, but I used a pretty simple gospel presentation right there. Does it baffle you to know that there are people sitting in this room right now who have no idea what I just said? They don't get it. Their foolish heart was darkened. Verse 22, claiming to be wise, they became fools. And here's the irony. The unsaved person claims to be wise. They claim to know the meaning of life. They have a trouble-free philosophy. And yet God says their wisdom, their education, their observations, their philosophy is actually foolishness. It's turned upside down. And here's where the outlandishness enters. Remember, point number two is outlandishness. They make a swap, and they make a trade. They, 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 they know who God is. They don't glorify him. They're not thankful to him. Their mind gets all messed up, and, and, and in their darkness and in their blindness, they make a trade. They make a swap. Verse 23, and exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling Mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Why does it say the immortal God? Well, it stresses that because it shows that he never dies. The things that they are worshiping are not even alive. They never were alive, but God never dies. He never diminishes. He never fades. And here's what the thankless, self-seeking fool will quickly and gladly do. They will make an exchange. They will trade God away for their idolatry. But I have been accentuating the word resembling in the sermon 
because I think I can understand, although it is not a good thing, and it is, it, is, it is a deep and grievous sin for you to worship another human being, you should not do that. That is bad. That is sinful. But I can kind of see where that might happen. He says they're not worshiping live, living human beings. They're not worshiping even animals that have been taxidermied. I mean, at least the giraffe used to be alive. But, but 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 now it's 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 just stuffed. But it used to be alive. No, it's not that. It is the images resembling mortal, meaning man who dies. But but what they put together there with this bronze or this wood, it, it like it, it it never was alive. And, and notice that the the idolatry degenerates into the basest of the animal kingdom culminating in reptiles. Do you see what has happened? They've started off by knowing God. And over time, now they're not even worshiping a real iguana, but, but, but a dead image of one. They're off to see the lizard. It is outlandish. And that is the way that idolatry works. And it would be so easy for us this morning to feel good about ourselves on this Easter because we are in church and there are no statues and there are no icons and we feel pretty proud of ourselves that we Baptists are not like those pagan idolaters who worship images of geckos. Well, congratulations. That's good. I, I mean, that, that, is, that is good. I mean, we would be in a rough spot if you were. But before we applaud ourselves too quickly, please consider that idolatry is primarily a function of the heart and not of the coppersmith or of the woodcarver. And we ourselves are in danger of this outlandishness. Please follow my argument. And I'm arguing from the greater to the lesser because you have greater knowledge of God than the pagan that is being spoken of in Romans chapter 1. You know God in that, I mean, you have a Bible, you have heard the gospel before, you are familiar with the contents of the Bible, you have heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, you, you, you might even be able to articulate it. So far, so good. And you might even claim to know God personally because you have accepted Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior. You might be saved or say that you're saved, and, and, and that's even better. Now, if indeed you are saved, here's what's going to happen. There's going to be evidence, and you're going to live for the glory of God, and you're going to have a thankful heart. But let's just say that the glory of God is not your goal. Follow my argument. You claim to know God, but the glory of God is not your goal. But in reality, you live for you. You seek your own, your own pleasure, your own glory, your own pride. And let's just say that you really don't have a thankful heart. I mean, you'll pray before meals because you need to do that in order to teach your family that that's the thing to do. But, but, but really in your heart, you're not a very thankful person. Let me ask you this question. I'm not trying to get up you know, all in your face and everything. But I, let me ask you, in the last 24 hours, could you list for yourself a few things specifically that you have taken time to stop and to reverently thank God for? 
other than your meal, have you stopped any time in the last 24 hours just, I don't know, if it's your health or your car or your, your parents or what, whatever God has given you, salvation, whatever, have you spent significant time in the last 24 hours, not even significant time, just a few little things. Have you been one who has been engaged in thankfulness, active thankfulness in the last day? Well, we've got these two enemies that are warring against us. On the one hand, we want to bring glory to ourselves, and secondly, we're not thankful. And what follows, even though we know God and know the gospel, we are not immune from having our foolish hearts be darkened and our mind be twisted and to be turned upside down. We perceive ourselves to be, to be wise, but in reality, we become fools. And here's what ends up happening to us. We think that we are walking in the light, but we are actually in the darkness. And we now are susceptible to the bad trade, to the bad exchange. So I have my Al Oliver card. I have given away my 100 cards. And I said, now to finish the deal, you owe me one card. And he said, I know which card it's going to be. Without question, it's the worst card that I own. It's the oldest card that I own. It is a 1957 Roberto Clemente card. I said, well, if you must. (laughs) That card was worth more than his house. He made a really bad trade. When you are in a weakened, foolish state, you will trade Jesus for nothing or next to nothing. Judas did it for 30 pieces of silver. What will we trade the glory of the immortal God for? Statues of birds? Probably not. But maybe you will trade the glory of the immortal God for pornography, for an image. Not an actual person, but an image. Pornography is a form of idolatry. And you're making a trade. You are trading away closeness to Jesus Christ in order to view a sexually explicit image. That's, that's a bad trade. That's, that, that's, that's not good. That's unwise. Or when you choose to deliberately miss church, I'm not talking about providentially you are hindered because you are sick or, or you, you're in a service industry where you have to work. I'm talking about you're just missing church regularly for sports or recreation or even for family. You understand what you're doing. You are trading God away for your idol. When you choose knowingly to engage in questionable, shady business dealings, you are trading Jesus away for a few bucks. And that is outlandish. When you engage in momentary pursuit of pleasure, let's say drunkenness, for example, you understand that you're not primarily a drunkard. You are primarily an idolater. You are trading God away for that high. So honestly, I'm thankful today that you are not bowing before the bronze chameleon. But idolatry is a matter of the heart. 
You say, well, what in the world does all of this have to do with Easter? I'm glad you asked. In closing, turn to the book of Colossians. Chapter 3. And I'm going to do something that I've never done before in a sermon. I'm going to read a passage backwards. I will start in verse 6. Colossians 3, 6, Paul says, On account of these, and we will define these when we get to verse 5, but the thing that I want you to see in verse 6, this is, that is, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. What does that remind you of? Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So there is this aspect of the wrath of God. Well, what are these things? Well, they're spelled out in verse 5. Put to death, therefore, and hang on to the word therefore because it's there for a reason. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, here we go, which is idolatry. Kill the idolatry, because if you don't, the wrath of God is coming upon you. The word therefore is there for a reason, and as we back up into verse 4, in part we see what it is. When Christ, is your, who is your life, appears then you also will appear with him in glory. So Paul is telling these people that they need to be motivated by the coming of Christ. And then verse 3, they need to be motivated by the fact that they are in union with Christ. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And and their thinking needs to change. That's in verse 2. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things on the earth. Okay. So now if you go 2 through 6, it looks this way. Think the right way. Realize you're united with Christ. Keep his second coming in mind. Put to death your idolatry. Because if you don't, the wrath of God is going to come upon you. How do I do that? Where does the power come from for me as one who is naturally inclined to suppress the truth, naturally inclined to not glorify God, naturally inclined to not be thankful? How do I, as a sinner, get the power to put to death idolatry? Happy Resurrection Sunday. The answer is found in verse 1. If then, or since then, you have been raised with Christ. You understand that Jesus died, and then he was raised again, and when we were with him in his death, he died for us, we were with him in his resurrection. And so we have this resurrection power in us in that we are joined to Christ. And since then, or if then, you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. The power comes from the resurrection. It comes from the resurrection. That is the main source. Jesus died for our sins and he rose again. And when I, when he was raised, I was raised with him. So, what does this resurrection power do for us? Well, number one, it must cause us to glorify him. 
in our lives, in our words, in our decisions, in our priorities. That we are not going to worship the pornography. We're not going to worship the sports or the family or the recreation. We're not going to worship the money. We're not going to worship the drugs or the alcohol, but we are going to give glory to him. His glory is our goal. And then simply to give thanks, to give thanks. I had a coach at the University of Pittsburgh. The way he was identified by players who did not know who he was, they called him the coach who didn't curse. One Christian coach at the University of Pittsburgh. And he said something which was so simple, but yet so profound. And this was 43 years ago. It has stuck with me to this day. He said, you know, you ought to be able to go through the day and several times throughout the day, you ought to sincerely be able to stop and just say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you. Are you one who frequently thanks Jesus? That is the application. Through the power of the resurrection, glorify him and be thankful. Don't trade Jesus away for your idols. But rejoice in the gospel. I'm going to give you a little warning. I'm going to say something. I say every Easter. And I want you to respond back in a way that is vigorous and, and will indicate that you are, you are ambitious to give glory to God. So, so give me good volume on this. He is risen. Ah, you're much better than the crowd at 9 o'clock. Praise God. Yes. Were you able to remember throughout this sermon that God loves you? He loves you. Why would you want to trade him away for an outlandish idol? All right. 23 verses down, 410 to go. You know what that means, right? It means we're getting there. It means we're getting there. Father in heaven, we left to ourselves, we'll glorify ourselves, and we will never say thank you. Lord, but by the power of your risen Son and his glorious gospel, our hearts will be changed. Lord, please change our hearts. Cause us to vigorously live for you. Lord, cause us, Lord, to perpetually be thanking you for all that you've done and all that you're doing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.